Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidmann, and today I'm joined by Susanne Bücke, Richard Lucas, and Samantha Heinzelmann, who are experts in the field of subjective well-being. Thank you for being here. Before we start talking about subjective well-being, could you introduce yourselves? My name is Susanne Bücker. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Ruhr University Bochum in Germany, and my research focuses on social well-being and the absence thereof, which is typically assessed as loneliness. I'm particularly interested in how social well-being or loneliness change over time, for example, across the lifespan or across historical time, but also in everyday life. I'm Rich Lucas, and I'm a professor at Michigan State University. Um, and I study lots of things related to subjective well-being. So I've looked a lot at personality correlates of subjective well-being. I've looked a lot at how life events are related to well-being and whether we adapt to the life events that happen to us uh, in terms of kind of coming back to our original levels of well-being. I'm also interested in a lot of measurement questions and well-being and knowing the strengths and the weaknesses of the measures that we typically use to assess well-being. I'm Samantha Heinzelman. I am an assistant professor of psychology at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. My research interests focus on understanding the experience of meaningfulness in everyday lives uh, and also the pursuit of happiness, particularly across contexts. So there are a lot of different dimensions of subjective well-being. And can you explain a little bit how subjective well-being is defined? So I think that there's a lot of disagreements about that, or at least a lot of nuances that I think people come down on different sides on. I usually like to think about the broad definition as really being about the subjective quality of a person's life. So whether they evaluate their life as, as a good one or a bad one and from the subjective perspective. And I think that if you start with that broad definition, it can kind of lead to different ways that you might want to assess that. And so I really like life satisfaction measures as just a really explicit way of asking a person, do you think your life is going well and how well is it going? But you can also imagine other ways that we can assess subjective well-being. So for instance, if someone's life is going well and they feel like their life is going well, they might experience more positive emotions on a day-to-day -day basis, which is why often positive and negative emotions are also used. Obviously, there are other ways that people have argued uh, should be included in our definition of, of well-being, but that's usually where I start. And how does subjective well-being fit into personality psychology? That's a very interesting question because personality is one of the most strongest and most consistent predictors of subjective well-being. And there are um, numbers of theories that explain why. But then on the other hand, I think personality traits are just a bit more stable across time. So others have argued that subjective well-being is rather a surface characteristic of traits like neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness, or conscientiousness. And as a surface characteristic, it is less stable over longer periods of time and tends to be more amenable to situational or environmental influences, for example. But I think there is still quite a debate on whether subjective well-being is a trait such as the Big Five or not. And I would be interested in your perspectives on that topic. 
Yeah, I mean, I think clearly if we look at the predictors, um, personality traits are often strong predictors there. I do think that the evidence, when we try to compare them directly in terms of things like stability, I agree that, you know, I think that the well-being variables tend to be less stable, especially over longer periods of time than personality. So it does seem like they diverge a little bit in terms of the how trait-like of these concepts are. So I, I typically think of it as, as a little bit less trait-like than, than the big five or something like that. And meaningful life, does that also work itself into personality? Yeah, I definitely think so in sort of the same way that subjective well-being does in that, you know, there is general consistency over time. It's stable across um, sort of a lot of, of life events. And so in some way it is sort of inherent to the person. But at the same time, there is this malleability, both in terms of responding to the external environment, what's happening right now, as well as sort of changes over time, where it's not sort of your life is, you know, a set level of meaning, regardless of what's happening around you, but it does seem to fluctuate a little bit over time, and in response to the external environment. So sort of very similar to subjective well-being in that way. Can you say something about uh, subjective well-being across the lifespan? Does it change with age? That's actually also highly debated. So there's still no consensus about how subjective well-being or life satisfaction changes across the lifespan. Early on, there were theories that it's rather U-shaped, that you have high subjective well-being in youth and then again in old age. But other empirical research found different trajectories such as linear increases or decreases. So that's actually still an open question, I would say. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one too, because it's such a simple, basic question that we have so much data to use to address the question. And so it's kind of amazing that we that there is still disagreement about this, but I think it just reflects the fact that um, you do get somewhat different answers, even with different, very good data sets and data that I've analyzed, the U is there a lot of times, um, but it is not always there and trying to figure out why it's sometimes in a big nationally representative data set and sometimes not is something that, that still fascinates me. And are there correlates of the U-shape? I mean, we've done one study where we tried to track changes over the lifespan in um, domain satisfactions. And, you know, in different domain satisfactions definitely do change in different ways over time. So people's satisfaction with income increases over the lifespan, their satisfaction with health decreases over the lifespan. And then what we argued in the paper is that if you kind of add all these domains up, they actually equal out to the U-shape that you get because just in the way that the, the patterns of things change over time. So we found that in one data set. And again, because of the inconsistencies in the general pattern over time, I think that that is a useful start, but I'm not convinced that, that that's the answer. Um, but it could be, yeah. So just looking at the way that things like health and income and social relationships and all these things change over the lifespan might be one, one reason for that pattern. I also think empirical studies differ um, in terms of whether they look at cognitive well-being, such as life satisfaction or domain satisfaction, and then others look at effective well-being, and then they find, again, other trajectories for positive and negative effect across the lifespan. And sometimes it's just mixed or lumped together in one subjective well-being construct. And uh, yeah, I think that is a future research question, actually, to look more closely on this trajectory and also whether this trajectory is similar across cultures, for example. I think that is still another big open question. How does loneliness change across the lifespan? Uh, Non-linearly. So it's rather a complex shape. We do find... Um, 
like higher uh, scores of loneliness in young adults aged 18 to 29 and um, in older adults aged 80 plus years, for example. And then there's another smaller bump around 40, so in midlife kind of. But if we control for a lot of other covariates, for example, health, then this strong increase in old age disappears. So apparently increases in loneliness in older age are rather due to changes in other constructs such as health or impairment, reduced mobility, for example. And it's still uh, an open research question why there is this bump in loneliness in young adults, for example, because mm -hmm. they actually have all the possibilities to connect and meaning in life, does that change? Yeah, so there's some work showing it sort of increases um, with age, particularly as people are kind of reflecting back on their lives, I think is kind of accounting for that increase with age. Some data suggests it kind of drops off at the end of very old age. So we've talked about some not robust findings and some controversies. What are the main robust findings that you can say more confidently this is replicable, and um, this is something that we can find in a lot of data sets about subjective well-being. Yeah, I think that one really robust finding is that happiness is good. Um, it is associated with um, some very positive uh, outcomes, uh, success in work, uh, relationships, um, some data on health, basically that it comes with a network of other sort of positive outcomes as well, rather than just being something that's sort of good for yourself, it seems to be good more broadly. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things we've already hit on is the association with personality characteristics. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a robust finding that you will get if you collect data using these measures. I think one thing that's tricky about that, though, I think is that sometimes we forget or people kind of downplay the fact that those are often assessed using the same method. Um, so some of the most robust, strongest associations, I, I do think, are uh, influenced a little bit by shared method variants. And I think we, we need to pay more attention to that one kind of comparing effect sizes. I also think that people don't often don't like this finding, but I actually think that money um, is really reliably associated, you know, and the, the effect sizes aren't hugely strong. Um, but I think that they're there. I think that it's an important predictor. I think it tells us something about the, the factors that, that do influence well-being. Um, so I think that that's actually a pretty robust finding. I think we can get pretty good estimates and they're pretty consistent estimates about the size of that effect. Yeah, that's pretty much the same for loneliness. So there we also find that unemployment, for example, shows consistent negative um, a consistent negative impact on social well-being and um, loneliness. And also longevity, for example, I think that's also um, robustly associated with well-being and also with loneliness. So there's even research showing that people who feel lonely have um, a higher propensity to die early, for example. Thanks. You've said that subjective well-being is more malleable than personality traits. What are the things that can predict changes? I think in our studies, it's interesting because I think we know that change occurs because we can do, we have many now very long longitudinal studies and we can look at correlations over long periods of time. And, and they're definitely, you know, they, they, the longer you go, the smaller the correlations get. And 
um, and they're moderate in size, so suggesting that change does occur. Um, finding the factors that actually predict that change, I think, is a little bit trickier, though I think we have some things that we know about. So we've done a lot of work on life events, and there are certain life events um, that don't seem to matter, but there are some that, that do seem to matter. So I think the, one of the most consistent ones that we've found is disability. Um, that really seems across multiple studies to be associated with changes in well-being. If people become permanently disabled and severely disabled, then they seem to experience declines, at least in life satisfaction. Um, some of the other events like unemployment also seems to matter. Um, but, you know, and again, some of the early findings that we had were that some events are surprisingly ineffective at, at leading to change. So sometimes marriage doesn't have as big of an effect or as lasting an effect as we might expect it to. So there are a lot of, you know, changes going on that sometimes are hard to link to specific things, even if we do know about some life events that seem to matter. What about social loss, like um, widowhood or divorce? I think for bereavement, it's quite interesting that there is apparently a very negative initial effect, especially when looking at cognitive well-being. But interestingly, after a while, there seems to be some sort of adaptation. And this adaptation was found to be higher after bereavement compared to divorce, for example, which I personally found interesting that um, apparently people, even though this is a really negatively impactful event, people seem to adapt to the situation better than after divorce, for example. Some of my work moves beyond sort of these big life events and, and circumstances and looks at how a lot of increases and fluctuations in subjective well-being can be wrapped into our activities of daily living and the things we do frequently and often. And there seem to be some activities that have been found that if people do and do often and do in a variety of ways um, can increase subjective well-being, at least in the short term. And sort of if practiced frequently enough and sort of embedded in one's life to sort of shift um, their mindset a little bit can have longer term outcomes as well. So things like simple things like um, expressing gratitude, performing acts of kindness, savoring um, mindfulness, uh, self-compassion, little things like this. It seems to be that, you know, in our sort of habitual patterns of acting in daily life can also have a big influence on our happiness as well beyond these sort of larger life events. Um, some of these activities can definitely increase um, subjective well-being, at least uh, in the short term. What about physical exercise? I conducted a meta-analysis with some uh, undergraduate students um, where we looked at randomized control trial studies, but also correlational studies um, that investigated the link between physical activity and well-being. And we found a positive relationship. We weren't very surprised about that. But we also found this positive relationship in um, randomized control trial studies, although I have to say that most of these studies looked at very short-term effects of this intervention, and not all of these interventions were really well-designed. So participants were usually not blind to why they are doing this exercise intervention. So yeah, there is still some uh, concern about the um, research quality of these intervention studies. So we've talked about more difficult life events like uh, widowhood, divorce, unemployment, disability. So sometimes people are very happy despite trials and and amidst all loss and illness, and other people are very much affected. Do you know something about those inter-individual differences in 
like resilience? Our studies suggest that there is real variance there. Like, so we've, we've done some studies where you say, okay, well, you know, if take the people who change the most after they experience a life event, and then let's look five years down the road, are they still happier than they were? Are they still happier than other people? And, and you do find that there is a correlation there. The people who change the most around the time kind of maintain those, those, those benefits over time, suggesting that there are some people who respond positively and some people who respond more negatively. But we haven't found anything that correlates with those changes. So we've looked at social support and we've looked at personality traits and we've looked at all these types of things. And um, I've been really disappointed in our ability to find things that predict who it is that actually does better uh, after these life events. Um, so yeah, it seems like there's so many intuitive ideas about what should matter, uh, what should predict this type of resiliency. And we just haven't been able to find these things, at least in studies that I think use stronger methodology like longitudinal studies that can actually assess the change that's happening as people experience uh, events. Yeah, for loneliness, we also looked at um, the age normativity of an event. So if it matters whether, whether one experiences an event at an average age or at a younger or older age than everyone else who also experienced this event, at least in our data set, but the findings here were really complex and we couldn't identify a very conclusive pattern, to be honest. So some for some events, we found that if people are older than average when experiencing the event, they were better off somehow, or at least their um, losses after the event um, were smaller than for people who experienced the event at an average or younger than average age. Although we, we also first thought that experiencing an event at an average age should be best somehow, um, and apparently that was not the case, at least not for all life events. And then if you find different things for different life events, it's really hard to explain why this could be the case. And this was uh, only found in one study. So I don't know how robust these findings are, and they should definitely be replicated. Samantha, do you know anything about like daily hassles and how they uh, affect well-being or meaning in life? Daily hassles. Uh, yeah. So in terms of uh, comparing like these major life events and daily hassles, some people are surprised to note that sometimes daily hassles have a more negative impact on our well-being, particularly because people don't necessarily employ coping mechanisms to deal with them and they're not necessarily addressing um, these daily hassles like they would with a major uh, life event like the loss of a spouse or something like that. Um, and so sort of frequent daily hassles can actually be more negatively impactful in the long term on uh, well-being, though people don't necessarily expect that. And perhaps because people don't expect that, they're not necessarily doing the work to deal with those things. Can you explain what counts as a daily hassle? Like a, a co-worker you don't like, or like a conflict with a co-worker, or these things in daily life that make your life harder. So a difficult commute, or a, a sick child, perhaps. Um, these things that are just embedded in your daily life that aren't these huge life events that, you know, you would necessarily think about when you're reflecting back on your year or something like that. How does that tie into the pandemic that we're experiencing? 
I think with the pandemic, we can tag it as like, you know, this is a COVID thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that can be helpful in employing coping mechanisms. But, you know, since it's so enduring, it's been a year and a half, not everything we can do is being tagged as a COVID thing, right? And so when we can't see our friends, necess- we we don't think about it anymore, right? It's just kind of a part of our, our lives. And so I think that though it started as this big thing and we'll probably reflect back on it as this big thing. I think a lot of the difficulty has been in these everyday things. Like our lives were disrupted in so many little tiny ways that, you know, we can think about it as this giant event, but not well at the same time, not necessarily thinking about these smaller parts of it. And has our happiness changed because of the pandemic? I think that depends on the time frame you're looking at. So most of the published studies, at least the ones um, I saw, uh, looked at rather short-term effects from maybe before the pandemic and then during the early phase of the uh, pandemic in March and April, for example, and uh, comparing these two measurement locations, at least for Germany, there were um, decreases in subjective well-being found in some studies, but other studies reported rather stable levels of subjective well-being. There were also some subgroups there that were more vulnerable to uh, changes in subjective well-being. For example, people who had mental health issues before the pandemic already, so people who were less well Uh, situated before the pandemic, or also people who um, raised their children alone, for example, that probably had just a larger burden um, to, to cope with during the pandemic. But then I'm also curious to see how these effects will change when we look at longer time periods, because all the research that is coming out at the moment really looks at short or at maybe midterm effect. I don't know whether in the long run we really will see uh, lasting changes or whether people will just go back to their normal level. Yeah, that kind of reflects my understanding of, of how things are generally. I mean, there's some evidence of declines, but it's a question of how long lasting they are. And I can't even remember which studies I've seen, but you know, I've tried to kind of separate the effects of the policies versus the effect of the the pandemic itself and you know i think that it, it, this is one of those areas where i'm i'm almost not even paying that much attention because i kind of want to see more stuff and see what shakes out uh in terms of things that, that are consistent across the different studies that are, that are kind of in progress right now what do people have to do to still be happy during a pandemic at that point i would still recommend using your social support system as much as possible. Having friends and having um, a good social support uh, system in everyday life definitely helps coping with challenging situations. So using the video tools or um, telephone or chats or whatever to stay in contact with friends and relatives is definitely A good recommendation, I would say, but also keeping physically active and healthy as much as possible. I mean, I think that also some of the things might be out of our control, but it is something that we would be thinking about in terms of what policies we would encourage, you know, our leaders to adopt. And so, you know, I think that 
kind of making sure that people have access to healthcare and, and have, you know, um, on, and have the tools to kind of deal with the, the more practical problems that the pandemic has created in terms of job losses and these sorts of things. And so, so even if there are some um, limits in terms of what we can do, sometimes the happiness research, I think, can kind of give ideas about what sorts of things we would want the government to support and these sorts of, thing, uh, sorts of things. And that might be where some of the action is in terms of maintaining people's well-being over time. Do you think um, meaning in life has changed, Samantha? Or people have looked for more meaning in life? I think that uh, anecdotally, um, a lot of people told me their meaning took a hit uh, initially and uh, particularly, I think, linked to a lot of facets of what meaning is. One, it involves a sense of purpose, right, where you can pursue goals. And it became very difficult to pursue goals in this time because the uncertainty was so much. We don't know you know, what's coming next. And so for a lot of people, it became very difficult to pursue goals. Uh, another aspect of meaningfulness is a sense of coherence and the ability to understand what's happening and make sense of the world. And I think that um, certainly was interrupted a bit here. One way we do that is through sort of making our lives really regular. And so our routines were massively disrupted through this. And so I haven't seen a ton of meaning in life data through this. Um, but my expectation is it, it sort of took a, a similar hit as well, um, though like happiness, you can sort of still do things embedded in daily life to kind of bolster this, this feeling through this difficult time. What are some misconceptions that people might have about what makes them happy and what doesn't? I think the biggest misconception is that there are these very black and white categories. For instance, I think it's often said, Rich mentioned um, the correlation between um, money and happiness. There's like heated debates of either money makes you happy or money doesn't make you happy. But like the pursuit of material possessions alone doesn't make a person happy. And so I think that one misconception is that there's very simple, clear answers when a lot of times the data suggests a more nuanced um, sort of how you spend your money can affect the amount of happiness it can provide and things like that. So I think that there's much more sort of gray area nuance um, beyond these black and white, what's the, the key to happiness. Another misconception um, I heard a lot is that if you use social media too often, you definitely get unhappy and this is really bad for your health and you will probably also feel lonely afterwards. And this is apparently like in, in non-scientific uh, communities, this is just a very strong belief that social media use is bad if you do it too much. And there is there's a lot of research coming out now that used really robust methods and that just didn't find that strong negative association. Apparently it's not how much you use social media but rather how you use it so if you what you do with that media for example and i think this is yeah i don't i don't know if i would recommend people generally to reduce their social media use or whether it would be better to look at how you should use social media or stuff like that i mean there is definitely a sort of excessive uh, media use that is probably not good for your health but if you use it as normal as we probably do, that's that probably doesn't do much harm. Yeah, and I think that this question is interesting because I, I actually don't know what people think about, like what you know non-scientists think about 
happiness and subjective well-being. And so I think that sometimes we have intuitions about what their intuitions are and, and, and sometimes our findings match and sometimes they don't. And it would be interesting, I think, to find out a little bit more about people's real intuitions about these sorts of things. I think one thing that does come up, I think, in terms of um, debates about studying well-being and using it in the context of policy and these sorts of things is is the question of whether people think that you know happiness is a silly thing or something that's important in their lives and at least at the you know at the level of debate that we get when we you know talk to policymakers or talk to people from other fields i think that sometimes there is a sense that you know happiness is this this silly thing that people don't really want or something like that and you know one of the things i'm impressed with is actually when you try to investigate that is just how much how important people think that it is how they kind of recognize that you know they might be willing to sacrifice some things um to get more happiness in other in other ways and so i think that that's one thing that sometimes we kind of lose lose track of is you know how important people think that this is and sometimes it's worth investigating because people do th think that's something important in their lives so you've never came across a self-help book and thought this is rubbish <laughs> you know i know uh, that's a good question i mean I, i mean i probably do i mean all right i'll say one controversial one that, that i think that um uh that sometimes i will will talk about and i've actually written a little bit about is that i think that we as uh, scientists overestimate the strength of the evidence for social relationships uh, as they are related to well-being. The measures that we typically use have the same problem as personality measures. They're kind of just evaluations of social relationships. So if I'm satisfied with my social relationships, I say I'm satisfied with my life. And I think that sometimes that shared method variance, that positivity bias can inflate those correlations. And if we look at more objective measures of social relationships, those things typically don't correlate that strongly with well-being. So how much time you spend with your friends, how many good friends you say that you have, anything more objective or that's measured using a different method, we typically find those correlations to be weaker. Personally, I do believe that social relationships probably are really important and that we might be missing something with those more objective measures. But I think it's important to take that like to take that evidence seriously and be honest with ourselves about what the size of those effects are. And if we think that they're not capturing something, we should figure out what method, what measures we should be using to capture what we think is important about social relationships. In addition to this, what would you say are some of the enduring research questions in the field? To drop a very broad topic, I think the exploration of the causal status of a lot of variables that are correlated with uh, loneliness is still a very big open field. So we know a lot about correlations, but we do not really know a lot about causal effects of some variables on subjective well-being, or maybe even the other way around, I don't know. For example, um, religiosity is associated with well-being, but we don't really know whether going to a mass really enhances our well-being or whether people who are well situated and feel well actually are more religious or from my own research um, I looked at the association between academic achievement and well-being and there we really don't know whether um, feeling well and being happy enhances your academic abilities or whether if you have high academic achievement, you feel better. Um, so it could be in both directions, but we just don't really know. And it's hard to manipulate academic well-being, but you could manipulate um, well-being and see whether it affects your academic achievement or use 
some other research designs that allow at least getting close to causality somehow. Yeah, I would definitely piggyback on that and say this causality question is huge. We, you know, have positive affect inductions in the lab and can see what that does or sort of infer this from a longitudinal design, but sort of understanding the outcomes that are caused by sort of happiness itself requires this sort of long-term change of a person's happiness levels over time. Um, And I think that uh, becomes difficult to really sort of move that in a way that you can see these outcomes like physical health or um, social outcomes or, or work outcomes. We think we really need stronger manipulations of this. And I think those manipulations need to be embedded in people's real lives um, rather than simply laboratory manipulations. And then, you know, we face all sorts of difficulties with changing well-being in real lives with adaptation processes and things like that. And so I think it's a big challenge, requires a lot of data and a lot of sort of hard-hitting, heavy types of manipulations to really move this around if we want to have very strong evidence for these causal outcomes of happiness. Yeah, I think all those questions are really important. I think personally, I, I still find, and I think a lot of people don't find this interesting, but I still find a lot of measurement questions about well-being really interesting. And, and actually, I do think that they're really important when we talk to policymakers or you know, people from other fields uh, who all have different concerns about the way that people answer these questions and whether they're answering honestly or whether they're answering in ways that make sense. And, um, and I think that actually it's kind of, I find it kind of fun to think about what sorts of things we can do to figure out what people are actually doing when um, they're answering these questions and what, what sources of invalidity, like lack of validity, um, are, are kind of creeping into these types of things. And so, you know, even though we've been working on these things, these measures for many, many years, and I do believe that they have a lot of validity for a lot of purposes, um, we know that they're not perfect and trying to figure out where things go wrong, when things go wrong, how we could potentially improve them. Um, I think is going to be a long process. Um, I think that we have a lot of work to do there. Um, and, and I like thinking about those types of things and trying to figure that out. Do you think there is something like too much subjective well-being? So can having too few negative experiences somehow backfire and be negative? I don't know whether there is research on that topic. I would just find it personally interesting whether there is some sort of optimal level in happiness and well-being for example yeah we've done a little bit of work with that with adina we we did a little work on this um and um there is evidence for it i think it's it is a tricky question um to answer and partly for those measurement reasons so um i think sometimes it's the case that if for instance you have a zero to ten scale there are some people who like to use zeros, fives, and tens um, rather than sevens, eights, and nines. And so sometimes those people who are tens who are doing worse than the sevens, eights, and nines are actually sevens, uh, but they say 10 because they're using the scale differently. So there is evidence of sometimes these curvilinear effects, but, you know, and I have authored some papers like that, but I also am a little bit cautious in the interpretation of those. But there are there are definitely some intuitive reasons why you think that maybe kind of people who are so divorced from reality, maybe that they're kind of feeling these things kind of don't respond to things in the situation and the environment that they should. And so it might have some negative outcome. I would like to ask you a lot of more questions, but um, so time is tight. But there's one last thing that I would like to ask you. You've mentioned at dinner and Sadly, he has passed away a few weeks ago. For all those listening who don't know Ed Diener, he um, 
he basically opened up the field of subjective well-being and and he has influenced many personality researchers directly and also indirectly so given that you've worked so closely with him what would you say was his scientific and maybe also personal legacy to you yeah i think his scientific legacy is all of this he really opened up this field and in the week since his death it's been sort of really illuminating as I'm grading papers in my class, every student is citing him. As I'm, you know, my textbook was developed by him. The NOBA project was also his legacy of open and affordable textbooks. Anytime you talk about subjective well-being, it's going to come back to Ed's scientific contributions there. In his later career, I got to work with him in his sort of later career stages, and he was really taking this legacy seriously of how can I make this science work for people? Um, and so has had a lot of impact on policy and sort of getting uh, these measures into sort of the Gallup Global Poll and things like this, um, and also working to sort of spread happiness both professionally and personally as well. I think he was a person who was simultaneously fully committed to his science and so curious and so um, fully deep in that, but also fully committed to his family and his students and his colleagues and just people. Um, and I think his legacy would be incomplete if he didn't talk about his kindness and his generosity as well. And just the amount of love he gave to people to sort of bring his professional network into his family network. Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, I was I was lucky enough that I did my graduate work with Ed and, um, you know, and I've obviously kept in touch with him over the years and continued to collaborate with him over the years. And it's a huge loss, I think, for everyone, both professionally and, and personally. I think that, you know, the way that I think about Ed is he was just so curious about everything. He would just do these stupid experiments in his daily life. <laughs> you know, there's lots of stories about, you know, things he would just have a question and he would just kind of immediately come up with this way to test this thing and kind of just do that in his own life. And, and that's who he was. But, you know, and I think that that way of approaching things was exactly the way that he approached his science. So he was, um, you know, if there was something he was wondering about, he would try to answer that question the best way he could. He was concerned about getting good data and doing uh, these analyses the best way he possibly could. So I think he was often at the forefront of a lot of, you know, new methodologies for studying things. I also found him to be extremely like non-defensive in his approach to things. So he didn't have a right answer. I don't think that he wanted to find um, and so I think that was actually, again, working with him, I think, set me up very well for dealing with things like the replication crisis, because, I, again, I think the, even he himself, as he was dealing with these things, I think, was very open to a lot of the um, reform suggestions that people were making because it went along with his idea of just trying to find the right answer rather than being defensive about things. And then I think that as you look at people's responses to this and kind of the, the tributes to him, I think that everybody agrees that he was just such a warm person who I think was so supportive and just, um, you know, was, was uh, you know, just so open to talking with anybody about these types of questions that I think that kind of anybody who met him in terms of whether you're a graduate student or, you know, um, a famous professor, I think he kind of treated you the same and um, had time for you and wanted to hear what you, you had to say about things. And so um, it was just, he was just always an easy uh, person to, to be around. And, and again, yes, super generous, both in terms of the people around him, but also the field and, and society more broadly. So really uh, just amazing contributions in all those areas. Thank you so much for um, joining mm -hmm. me. Subjective well-being is, I think, something that influences the daily life of everyone and everyone wants to be happy and 
I'm really glad that um, you all joined me and sharing your expertise also with the broader public. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Here's the summary of some of EJP's latest articles. I am René Matus, editor of the European Journal of Personality and one of the hosts of this podcast. In this podcast, I want to summarize two papers recently accepted for publication in the European Journal of Personality. When we hear the word personality traits, what often comes to mind is personality testing. When it comes to personality tests, however, we often worry about the degree to which we can trust the test results. When people describe their personality traits, are they really doing this honestly and truthfully, or perhaps paint a biased, overly positive picture of themselves? This is something we often call socially desirable responding. Although most researchers would agree that personality test scores do contain useful and valid information, they would also agree that the valid information is often mixed with socially desirable responding and it is really, really hard to tease these two apart. One way to do this, pursued by Joshua Wood and his colleagues, is to take extra care that the questionnaire items are worded as neutrally as possible so that test takers could use them to describe their personality traits as they are without necessarily veering in the direction of what is socially desirable. Because in case of neutrally worded items, it is not even clear what direction is more desirable. They compared their new instrument, the less evaluative five factor inventory, to a standard instrument measuring the same big five personality traits and found that the new instrument generally retained its good properties, such as reliability and ability to predict other variables in which people differ, such as school grades and various lifestyle aspects. The degree to which people's self-ratings agreed with information about their traits provided by their friends and relatives was also largely similar to that of the standard measure. So, wording personality test items more neutrally did not make the test worse, Big deal, you may say. But there was a positive aspect. The personality traits were much less correlated among themselves in the new, less evaluative test. And it can often be very useful if personality test measurements are more distinguishable from one another. For example, then we can be more certain that a high consensuousness score really means a high consensuousness score, not that the test taker just tried to make themselves look good. I think the new test is a very useful tool for anyone who wishes to measure the big five personality traits and I think it will be used widely. In another recent paper, using a large sample of Finnish twins, Reynard de Vries and his colleagues explored whether individual differences in two dimensions of political ideology, orientation towards social dominance and right-wing authoritarianism are at all heritable and whether they are related to the kinds of family characteristics that siblings share, for example upbringing. We know very well that many psychological characteristics such as personality traits tend to be similar between siblings, but almost entirely due to their genetic relatedness and very little due to the experiences that the siblings share. But surely ideological preferences can be something different, for example, largely depend on how we were raised rather than what genetic variants we happen to inherit. The findings, however, show that political preferences are no different from other traits. They are moderately heritable, 
and almost not at all related to the experiences that siblings share, whereas the rest of the variability in them probably results from just random influences that we cannot trace to anything specific, yet anyway. Moreover, the two dimensions of ideological preferences were correlated with personality traits, and these correlations, in turn, seem to stem from shared genetic influences. In plain language, the same genes partly contributing to both personality traits and political ideology. So, in many ways, how people differ in ideological preferences is just another expression of their personality traits. Not much more, not much less. <laughs>